Welcome to Hearthside Salons, talks and conversations to feed your creative fire. I'm Heidi Hornbacher of Pagecraft Writing. Each week we bring you a guest worth listening to. To be able to see yourself in someone else's story, you need curiosity and empathy. In the last few years, we've seen Oscar-winning films purportedly about a black story where the lessons learned by the white characters take primacy over the journey of the black character. At this moment of awakening regarding race in America, what does that curiosity look like? Writer Trisha Nelson believes that people being able to see themselves in stories of people who don't look like them is a good place to start. She's made a list of essential black viewing where the stories aren't about black suffering or a black story reflected through a white lens. We talk about code switching, backlash against the term white privilege, and the issue with movie tropes like The Magical Negro. Trish and I have been friends for a while, and um, I know you as somebody who's always like got your finger on the pulse of everything, um, around, especially around L.A., and... Um, you know, I'm a huge, obviously, as a writing teacher, I'm a huge supporter of anyone writing. And when I saw that you had written these pieces, I was really interested. And obviously, given the times that we're in, it's just like, it is time to stop focusing solely on white voices and white storytellers and white reflections of Black stories. So, um, I loved your pieces. And I wanted to bring you on and like, talk about what's what do you see as happening and all of that stuff. So um, we can just start with what made you want to write your pieces on Medium? Thanks for having me on. It's different to be on this side of it. I know. So I've been entertainment industry adjacent for a long, long time. And I have feelings about entertainment. I love television. I'm in the TV Academy. I love movies. I particularly love classic films. And I, to take it back, I remember I was watching Netflix on a Valentine's Day a couple years ago, a few years ago now. And I just randomly found a really cute rom-com that had a black woman in the lead. And I loved it. I'm like, oh, it made me feel some sort of way. And I I said, okay, the more like this didn't really deliver. I wanted to watch another rom-com with a black woman as the lead. And so I posted it to social media. I'm like, I love this film, you guys. I want to see another one. Who can tell me, you know, can anyone suggest anything? Waiting to exhale. Love and bad. I'm like, you do realize Waiting to Exhale is like almost 20 years old or 20 years old now, right? That's a problem. So rewind to a several weeks back when, you know, everybody's having this racial awakening and wanting to be good allies and wanting to keep things top of mind. And I'm seeing these, these uh, suggestions like movies, books to read, books to read have a lot to do about trauma and, and overcoming it. TV shows to watch. Okay. We've got a lot more. TV shows and miniseries, movies to watch. And I see these movies that are like the help. Are you kidding me? The help? And so that was the last straw. I know like I have something to say. When I have something to say, I gotta write it out. And I wrote it out and, and I put it on medium because 
you know, people may think, oh, I want to watch a black movie, but I just, I was looking at the Bechdel test and different tests that come up. They're like, well, what do these movies, do they meet a certain criteria? Are they really stories? Are they really real stories? So I came up like, is it a biopic? If it's a biopic, it's a true story. It's all right, but whatever. Does it, uh, is it about slavery, Jim Crow? I'm like, I don't, we don't, we know about this. This is all we've been taught about black people in America from day one. They were enslaved, they were tortured, they still are tortured, blah, 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 blah. So criteria like that. And and if you go through it, there are very few movies that meet the criteria. So what I did was come up with a bunch of classic films that, you know what, I want to feel good about myself. I want to feel good about Black people and Black stories and Black joy. And these are the movies I suggest. So that, that's the genesis of the piece. Well, I love that. And I feel like um, it was a particularly telling moment for me with Green Book at the Oscars. You know, it's like, and you could see people finally get it. Not everyone, obviously, but you could see people finally kind of go, oh, wait, is that, oh, yeah, wait a minute. That's problematic for these reasons. You know, it shouldn't, the, the, the guy who's the, the basically the reason for the story shouldn't be the supporting character of the story. And like, it was this kind of, you could see people, you could see white people going from, I really enjoyed that film to, oh, wait a minute. And it was kind of the first time I'd seen it happen in real time. And, you know, unfortunately. There are a lot of things at play there, right? The people who tell the stories are the ones who, who you know. Who vote for the stories. Stories to tell so, so many stories about black people are told through the eyes of white people. So, yeah. you know, even if it is a biopic, maybe we're going to center this good white person to make us feel good about ourselves, that Kevin Costner character in Hidden Figures. Like, this movie is about these amazing historical women. Why do you need to, why does he need to be the hero? Marshall, I watched that just recently. Here's a story of a Supreme Court justice who was an enigma. I mean, just a fascinating man. And they told a sliver of his story through the eyes of the Josh Gad character. Literally, he could have been a magical Negro in that film. He was the fairy godmother of the film. Wow. So it's just, if you go back and look at these movies where it's the noble Black woman who will sacrifice her life for the family she works for, that's not real. That's white people wanting to make themselves feel good about something. Right. Green Book, if you really want to talk about the Green Book, the Green Book was a way of survival for people yeah. traveling through the South um, at a time where nobody wanted us to be there. How does that become about how, uh, a, a, how you know, a rough guy rough around the edges with some racial, racist tendencies, how he comes around? How does that happen? The yeah. white default of the lessons learned by a white person are more important than the journey of a black person. Yeah, and, and it happens all the time. And, oh, yeah. uh, you know, I was going back, I used to, I, I've written a couple pieces around Oscar time uh, several years ago mm -hmm. because I felt some sort of way about Oscar so white. And I remember um, 
is it Variety or Hollywood Reporter, they print these uh, brutally honest accounts, you know, like who a voter is going to vote for and why. Okay. um, The year Selma was up, here's Selma, you know, the civil rights movement, Dr. King, whatever. And a person says, I'm not even considering it. How is it that there are no white people? I mean, it wasn't just them. There were, so the person felt some sort of way because white people weren't centered in the story about Dr. King and the civil rights movement. Wow. But another time I remember reading one of these uh, ballots and the, the screenwriter who wrote the Mandela movie that Idris Elba starred in mm-hmm. did not do well. It was not well received. And he felt some sort of way about it. And then people said, well, you know, none of the speeches, they weren't his speeches. It's like, yeah, his speeches were boring. So I took liberties with this. So again, here we have a historical figure who should be able to speak, whose words should be able to speak for themselves. And we have a white screenwriter who says, no, no, I need to use them. So it, it's, it's something that has been going on for ages. Yes. Um, it's something that's going to take a while for people to break out of. Yes. You have a, you know, you're, uh, you're very particular perspective on, on, on who we are and what, how we got here anyway. So tell me a little bit about your background, like your childhood, where you grew up, all that kind of stuff. What were, what were the expectations of you as a kid? Well, my mom's on, so she can keep me uh, honest. I'm from New York. I was born and raised in New York. Um, the child of immigrants, my parents, um, came to this country from Guyana, South America, when they were very young. Um, they had, they were a young family. And so I, I grew up in New York. Um, these Caribbean families, we care about um, education. So I was always in programs. I, I was in one program to get me into a private school. And I went to private school in New York City. Briefly, uh, we went to the suburbs. I had a great suburban upbringing. I went to Carnegie Mellon. After Carnegie Mellon, I decided to go to journalism school at Columbia. And I things took a turn because this thing called new media was really intriguing. And the class seemed a lot cooler than the nightly news class. So um, I got into digital media in the mid 90s. So my career, was early on. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, I worked for Disney Online when nobody else at the Walt Disney Company knew there was a Disney Online. Um, I've run some celebrity websites. I've worked in tech. That's my background. Um, growing up in New York, you know, we're, we're TV kids. We come home from school or go to grandma's house and watch TV. Back then, the networks used to show, you know, the reruns, the love boats, the whatever. But um, ABC affiliate would show movies classic movies and the movies would be in a theme so uh, maybe Halloween week it'd be all like Vincent Price films or um, it's all biblical films and so I really got a taste for classic film uh, that's just been my thing I, I'm a Turner Classic Movies mega fan and yes. that's where I come from so we kind of already talked about what like made you want to write these given your background and I, I think it's you know, it's funny to hear you say that because uh, I missed the whole classic movie thing as a kid. I grew up on What's Happening, uh, Sanford and Son, The Jeffersons. You know, so I'm just like, 
I missed all the classical stuff and went like straight into like, you know, in fact, you know, a friend of mine and I are writing, we've written a couple sitcoms together and we keep basing things on what's happening because we're like, that's the model. Like we love it. And, you know, then you had 227 and uh, obviously the Cosby show and a different world. And then like, it feels like things just went like real white until blackish. I mean, I, I could be missing some things, but. Um, no, that's about right. I mean, you know, we talk about, people are saying there's a thing now, where, where's, where are all those shows in syndication? Why can't you see Living Single the way you can see Friends? Why didn't Friends know that there was a Living Single? Yeah, it's still like every so often I'll still be like, wait, lay. And I'll be like, oh, no one, people don't know what I'm yeah. saying. They don't um, know what I'm talking about. And, you know, there was back in the early days of Fox. They catered to black people, but it, it just fell out of vogue, I guess. Well, it's interesting. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting in your piece, which I hadn't realized, was that Porgy and Bess is missing. Can you talk about that? It's crazy. There's a version of Porgy and Bess that has Sammy Davis Jr., Dorothy Dandridge, and Harry Bell. I mean, it's just a who's who in this film. It is missing. It is in the Library of Congress. So if you know, like they lost the print. Um, I, I think the company just wasn't interested in preserving it. I don't know what happened. I mean, it sounds, it's an Otto Preminger film. And it sounds like it was a hot mess. But literally, why can't we see this film? It's got everything. That is is nuts. So I'm planning, I mean, if all goes well, and I'm in D.C. in January, I'm going to put in a request to to be able to screen the film. That would be amazing. But it's a shame. It is. And it's weird that it's like, to even learn about that it exists, and then like, wait a minute, why... Are we not able to see that? And, you know, when I can see Singing in the Rain or, you know, name it, name it, like everything. Or hot mess classic film. I mean, there are plenty of hot mess classic films that That's are you know, cavalcade of stars and it just goes wrong. Yeah. Like, why can't we see this film? Yeah, I, that'd be, I, I hope you write a piece about that, like just specifically about your quest to have that screened because I think that's fascinating. Like, Why? What is it about Sidney Poitier? <laughs> Let's just talk about him for a minute. I oh, just he's swell. Um, I'm a Harry Belafonte. I, I, I love both, but um, I, I uh, Carmen Jones is was one of my favorites, and um, yeah, he's he's. They're both just swell. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and it's I, great that they're still with us. Yes, I had a huge Harry Belafonte phase, and like end of high school kind of thing where I was listening to his stuff all the time and just yeah getting into the groove another thing I found interesting in your thing in your uh, article was talking about Cooley High from Cooley High to what's happening you know there's kind of like you can draw a thread you can draw a line there and and then I was just thinking again those have disappeared the shows about young black people just sort of well you know we have do have dear white people they're in college yeah. already but college. You know. and we've got um what's it grownish yeah right but you know 
I guess somebody out there has got to write it, you know, and there, there are other things at play too, that we could go down a rabbit hole. Like, have you noticed that all of a sudden families are blended? Yeah. And so I'm wondering if there are any young um, performers who are just black, not mixed. I don't think they get work anymore because oh, you look on commercials and they're racially ambiguous or obviously right. I just don't, I think that the mainstream has decided that that's what's black, that Yara Shahidi yeah. is black, that Halle Berry is black, you know, and uh, everybody else is, I don't, I don't know what they are, but there's a lot of things at play. Yeah, that actually, I hadn't thought about that, but that is, that is really interesting because you see somebody like Lakeith Stanfield, maybe, or, you know, or somebody who's, or, or David Oyelowo is, a, you know, darker and she's um, the supermodel with the shaved head. Like the, she's very dark yeah. and like, and it's almost shocking to see, to, you know, to, if, if you start to think of like the mixed kids, like, oh, that's black. Um, it's, it's such a difference. Um, my friend Monia was on last week talking and she's Arab and Belgian and she gets a lot of what are you ism where and people she's are probably your Puerto Rican aren't you <laughs> yep she she goes out for a lot of Latina roles and then she's just like when she goes out for Arab roles she's told she's not Arab enough and she's like but I am Arab like this is what Arab looks like what are you what so that is a whole bizarre thing so let's talk a little bit about tropes like problematic tropes i mean we already touched on a little bit but you know the magical negro people love that magical negro don't they they really do i remember my mom loved bagger vance like it was that was her favorite movie for a really long time she was a golfer and a white lady who wore a lot of collared shirts so i don't <laughs> think she thought about it further than that. And that's, I think that's the issue with a lot of this. I don't think people think about it further than that. One of my favorite characters, uh, Whoopi Goldberg in Ghost. You can't get more magical and Negro than that. Literally. Bad people. I mean, she had the best lines. Yes, she did. Molly, you and danger girl, but she was a magical Negro. And, and think, you know, like um, the Green Mile, even, um, oh my gosh, the one, every film that Morgan Freeman is in. I was going to say, and you brought up Kevin Costner earlier, his Robin Hood, he, Morgan Freeman is the magical Negro in that. He's the, yeah, you know, Morgan Freeman is pretty magical. He's, I mean, he's magical just on his own, but like. Got the voice of God, which yeah. is a, a level of magic, I guess. Yeah. But, um, but yeah. Um, I literally, when I'm giving uh, lesson, lessons, when I'm giving like screenplay classes on how to differentiate when you should use voiceover, when you should use off camera, off screen, I literally say voiceover is the thing that, that, that he does in your film. That's his job. Like that's Morgan Freeman. That's what voiceover means. He's the voice of God. So what do you know much? I mean, I don't know the, the origin of the, of the magical Negro as a trope. Like, I don't. I gotta ask the Google, but I mean, there's but like, we've got the magical Negro, we've got the tragic, I mean, we don't use this word anymore, but the tragic mulatta, <laughs> that's another one. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's just, that's what we've seen on screen. 
Why do you think that white writers, directors, people sort of the people at the at the head at the in the, at the wheel in a lot of these situations are so interested in black suffering as a story device? I can't tell you, but I I think it's it's a byproduct of the, the supremacy in the uh, you know in our society because you know there's a touch of paternalism. Mm-hmm. These, oh, these people, they, they suffer so much. And, and that's what they know. It's, yeah. it's dehumanizing people, whether they want to admit it or, or realize it or not. That's the key is the dehumanization. And, and it's like, that's where you see a lot of these, the, these efforts get misguided because they think like, oh, I'm telling a story that has this amazing, like this amazing African-American character. And it's like, but you're only telling it from the point of view of how she's helping a white person. But this is the of the help, you know, or something industry, like that. Right? This is the foundation. Yeah. How people in blackface. What were people in blackface doing? They're trying to mimic their idea of what a black person was. Um, there was a time where people preferred to see, you know, white people in blackface much more than act, an actual black person performing. It, it, it's uh, more that that power structure and the dehumanization. So this is the basis of, of this industry. So it's, it roots run deep. The, the thing about um, that, that writer saying that he wasn't going to vote for these movies because they didn't have a white character or white perspective in them when they were, that wasn't the point. It, it reminded me of that whole thing of like, you know, you, if you've been at the front of the line for so long, you don't even realize there's a line so that when someone points out there's a line, all you can feel is your own disempowerment, even though that's not actually what's happening. We're just saying, how about you share? And, and it's like, you, could, you see it all over with people freaking out about, you know, any kind of sharing in the power structure. So that. That's authenticity, you know, yeah. like, your idea of what a black person is like is second to actual uh, an actual what a black person is like. Right. You know, but again, this is this is the foundation from which, which we're built. You look at in books. Uncle Tom's Cabin was a huge book. Right around the same time, an actual man who was enslaved wrote a book that was published called Twelve Years a Slave, and we didn't hear about it until this century right so this is what we're dealing with yeah well and and i feel like you know as a like how you know how can i be a better ally is it something i'm always trying to get to ask to to ask to be to be open to that and as you know i've written characters i've written several scripts and i've written a book with a central character who's mixed and you know, my, that was like, I, I was like, I need to have you read it and tell me like, you know, cause it can't, there are things I'm never going to know. There are things I'm never going to get right. So I need, I need input to write it. But then there is that line of when is it not appropriate for me to tell that story or when is it not appropriate or is it appropriate if you're just sensitive or like, where do what, are, what is your feeling on that? Like who tells the stories? Well, there's a lot going on out there about who can tell whose story. So, you know, this is just my personal feeling, but if you think about it through the years, through this industry, 
who has been telling stories of black, white, woman, man, it's been men. Men have been able to write women's stories authentically because they know them. I think that a white person could, could write a black story if they knew that they had the knowledge and were authentic about it, but that's the, the problem. I can write a story with a white protagonist because I know white people. I've been around white people, my world is white. But a lot of white people live in a world where they don't know any black people, or if they know, they don't actually know how they live. They don't, they know them superficially. Right. So we need to get to a place where a white person can understand my life the way I can understand a white person's life. Yes. It, it, then it's okay to write it, just as long as you're not taking a space away. I mean, this is the problem that people have. Why, why, um, why is this person writing this story? It's not like you can write the story, but the fact that you're been being given the chance to write the story in addition to writing your own story and this authentic person doesn't even get like a, a toehold in the door to say, consider me. So, yeah. so that's Well, I think that's a really good point about taking a space. And like, this is a terrible example. Um, a couple years ago at the Grammys, when Macklemore won the best rap album, I was like, oh, no. I mean, say what you will about like, sure, some of those songs are fun, whatever. But it's like when every single nominee, it's like, is, is, is a fantastic black artist, and then you give it to the one white artist, I was just like, guys, come on. Like, can't, are you not cringing? But again, um, with Grammys, that's a perfect example. Right. That was not, the industry was not meant for black people. It was meant for white people's interpretation of blackness. So if you'll notice throughout the years with the Grammys, they keep, they have these broad categories and they keep separating them. And, you know, it's the de facto is to say, well, you've got your black category. Right, right. Um, you know, like it's urban rap or whatever, right. but like the rap rap is us. So it, it's just, you know, it, it's the same, the same old story. Well, and then we have to deal with like the ghettoization of, oh, well, that's on BET. I don't need to watch, I don't watch BET, so I'm not going to watch that show. And it's like, that's, that doesn't work either. You know? Yeah. I mean, I watch Friends. I watch Frasier. Why can't you watch a different world? Why can't you watch Living Single? Like, What's the difference? There's, there's tons on television. You yeah. can watch me. I mean, the thing is, white people have to learn how to see themselves in people who don't look like them. Yes. From birth, people who are not white all around the world have been seeing themselves in Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz and Charlie Bucket and Willy Wonka. It's not a problem for us to see ourselves in those characters, but for some reason, there's a block that if that character is black, if it's a black Ariel, oh, that's not my little moraine. Right. You know? So it, it's a problem and, it, and it's something that people need to work on themselves to fix. Yeah, I mean, how do you, I mean, for me, like, I just think I was about to say, what do we do about it? But I think for me, it's like, it starts young, education from a young age and exposure, right? Like exposure, I, you know, I, I didn't have, there weren't a ton of dolls that were black. So it's a thing, but now they're, they're dolls of every color. So it's not weird for a little blonde girl to want like a, a 
Princess Tiana doll, want to dress up like Princess Tiana at Disney yeah. Park. I mean, it, that that's where it starts. Yeah. Because we do have Princess Tiana now, and do you feel like there's a positive shift? Well, Princess Tiana is now like 10 years old. So like, um, and we have Moana, who's, you know, Pacific Islander, not a white girl, yeah. Think finally. Uh, but, you know, we just need many more of these stories. You look yeah. on Netflix every day and Amazon, these, you know what? We will have parody when we can have just as many terrible black movies to get, you know, great promotion as the terrible white movies. That is, we have enough corny love stories on the Hallmark Holiday Channel with black leads as we do white leads. That's what we need. Yeah, and that's the challenge of how many failures do you get? You know, we've, we've, we can all point to a million examples of, well, that white boy, his first movie tanked, they gave him another one. That movie tanked, they oh, gave him another one. These are not allowed to fail. Right, and so it's like, are black <laughs> movies allowed to fail? Probably And not. when you do, like, a Ryan Coogler, how many times did he have, does he have to succeed to say, okay, this dude is worthy of a big-budget film? Like, right. why? not on every shortlist he's proven you can do a, a small film you can do a superhero film but still you know maddening i i'm a big i'm a big proponent of of you know the educational aspect and and reading i feel like reading is a huge part of it because because when you don't have the visual you you do project yourself in like as a kid i remember reading all these books where you know the the protagonist was of color or was a boy or was a girl whatever and I remember at one point I was reading this book about this Indian boy and doing, you know, in India and he was having these adventures and, and I was like, this is so cool. And that, that was this weird turning point when all of a sudden I realized, oh, wait a minute, I wouldn't be allowed to do that because I'm a girl. Like I wouldn't, they wouldn't let, I couldn't walk through that place because I'm a girl. And it was like, but I'm the same as him. What? What? And it was this weird realization. So, but I feel like that's, better yeah, if you can't, if it's, people just not read people don't read the way they used to and i mean we just don't have the text to to make it i mean look at the hunger games movie she kind of made it clear that the character of rue was not a white girl but somehow it didn't translate for people right. they they you know had a cow that that rue was actually black like she was in the book yeah so i'm there, there's there's some things to overcome. Yes. Um, well, and for sure. Vortex. And, you know, and it's on writers and creatives to just to think bigger. You yeah. think of the most revered storytellers, George R.R. R. Martin, who wrote the Game of Thrones books. He created a whole world of direwolves and dragons and houses and white walkers. Yet, the enslaved people in Unix were black how, how, you know, like, how can you be so creative on one hand and so right. predictable on the other? Well, it's that, like, what Michael Mack was saying a couple episodes ago was, like, it's the failure of imagination. It's, you know, you can, you still are writing, in a way, what you know. Yeah. And, like, the gatekeepers, like, you know my, my surfer girl story, that's, we were, my, my partner and I were commissioned, my partner is a woman of color, and we were commissioned by, um, to do this piece for Disney, a family, like, drama like com dramedy kind of series and we did and then they ended up 
passing, but so we took it, we got packaged. It was like hot and it went to Amazon and Netflix. And both of us, both of the feedbacks we got from both of those were, can she be white? The little girl that's the protagonist. And can she be a boy? And we were like, no, no, she can't. Cause white boys, there's no obstacles for white boys to surf. There's a ton of obstacles for little black girls to surf. And, and it just, and, and then all this stuff starts coming out of like Oscar's so white. And we're just sitting there going, well, yeah, but we came to you with the thing and, and you didn't want it. I don't. Well, there's magical Negroes and there's also magical thinking. A lot of magical thinking happening. Yeah. That. Things are looking good for it now as a feature, by the way. So yeah, but yeah it's just kind of like it, it's, it's. And then when I tell people that they're like, oh, you should get that out there now. I'm like, well, we are, but you'd be surprised as much as everyone says they want black stories. We're still, we're still struggling to, you know, so it's like, it's like the whole, you have to work twice as hard to be seen as half as good. So, and I don't claim to have any actual experience of that. You know, it's like, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm adjacent. Black story. They're meaning like the blind side. Or, right, you know, right. Which again is like, let's tell it through a white, how helpful the white lady is. The white lady who taught the big black guy how to play football and be assertive. Really? <laughs> Which I, I, I was reading about that not too long ago about um, the actual guy saying like, I'm not, I'm not actually uh, mentally behind in any way. I don't know why they had to portray me that way in the movie. Like, because then he'd need more help, so. Yeah, then he wouldn't need, he wouldn't need Leanne or whatever her name yeah, was. Yeah, then he would have agency. Yeah, and then Sandra Bullock wouldn't have won an Oscar. Well, that's what it's all about, Sandy. What are you seeing with the protests, like, happening? Anything? I, I think, I think differently. I'm a woman of a certain age. Mm. a lot. And I really, I, I mean, how many different ways can people protest? You know, I'm just sick of it. Yeah. it. You do it, there's passion. But back in the civil rights era, you know, they protested and marched because of the optics. You know, they wore their Sunday best. And, uh, you know, people didn't mind sticking dogs and cannons and whatever on them but it made for compelling TV and that's what shifted hearts and minds. We have a zillion things vying for our attention. Another protest is not gonna move the needle. So I'm, what I'm struggling with myself is how do we bring protests into the 21st century? What is really going to change hearts and minds? I guess the time was right because things are changing. Monuments are coming down. The passion is there, which is great. The momentum, but how do we keep up that momentum? How do we make sure that once things, people settle down and, you know, COVID isn't a thing because COVID is the reason why. I mean, people don't have jobs to go to. They don't have a lot to focus on besides staying alive. So there's a captive audience for all of this. But how do we make sure that if we have to protest again, if injustices continue to happen, that it's in a way that's really going to move the needle. And I don't know that marching is going to do it. I don't have answers, but I think it's going to be a first century um, 
approach to it. Well, I've certainly had the Black Lives Matter, no, all lives matter argument with a lot of people in my life. Just like, you know, whereas before I would have maybe just on, oh, well, that's just how they, they think. And now I'm like, no, this is the protesting I can do is not letting them like making myself uncomfortable, like having the conversation that I would have avoided before because it's going to be messy. And, and I, that's the difference. So many times um, allies with a lot to lose, you know, you know, when I can afford it, I'll swoop in and do some work and I'll swoop back out to my comfy right. life. And it's like, look, our bodies are on the line. You really want to be an ally? You got to make yourself uncomfortable. Yeah. And people are realizing that. I was going to say also that has to do with curiosity. Um, and what you were saying before about the white people, like, you know, the white friends not knowing how black people live and, you know, the black people going to the white living in a white world, basically. And there was an article I read not too long ago where, where uh, a woman was saying, like a black woman was saying, I'm so tired of, and she actually called her friend out. She was like, do you not realize you've never been to my house? We always go to your house. You've never been curious about how I live and what my neighborhood is like. And I, that just really, I, I went, oh shit. Yeah. I, yeah. And when I was filming this, this part, part for the surfer girl thing, we were down in South Central and Compton and all those areas, you know, predominantly black neighborhoods. And I was like, okay, wow, this is, I'm feeling, I'm feeling things. This is, you know, and part of it was like really uncomfortable. And it was the family that we were hanging with, you know, at a certain point, I'm just like, all right, I, they're all laughing at me. And I'm just like, okay, this is fine. Like, that's, that's fine. You know, and it was just, it was a really interesting social experiment for me to just really be immersed in that world for, you know, a few days, not like a lifetime, but just a few days and just kind of go, okay. For black people and people of color, our entire existence is about code switching. Yeah. So yeah, people don't realize that, but I know they really, they really don't. And that was, it was very eye opening for me and, you know, in the ongoing attempt at being a good ally. So I, I do want to open it up for questions. We've got an amazing audience here with us tonight. Um, Sarah, do you want to ask that or do you want me to read it? Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for having this marched and organized with Black Lives Matter Cincinnati, which was an organization that um, they're all different all across the country, as many of you know. And that organization was allied with LGBTQ organizations, Native American organizations, basically everyone, labor folks. And it was quite an education, but I did their PR and it was incredible. I've done PR and publicity for other organizations, nonprofits, etc., and when I called the media, they only wanted to know, where are you guys marching? They never asked me other questions about, oh, we got your um, demands and we want to do a more in-depth interview about that. We're seeing that now, but it's a little bit too late, in my opinion, because at that time, this is right after Ferguson. I can see after that experience how it would be maybe... It's hard to change the media, first of all, for various reasons. <laughs> hard to influence the media for many more reasons. And I think it would be equally difficult in production and entertainment, maybe even more so with the, well, they're all profit motivated. So I'm just kind of curious what you think, like how, as a white ally, can I educate my white friends in production and elsewhere to help change this culture? There was an interesting, I don't know if you've heard of this, was it one of these boards? It was more writer focused. 
everybody now is open to black stories. So some, oh, it was an editor? Editor um, looking for, want to compile a list of black editors. And white editors started having a cow. Like, this is racist, blah, 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 blah. And there was a huge to-do. The thing is to realize that there needs to be, everybody needs to be at the table. You really won't need to advocate as much. You just need to be an ally, but there needs to be somebody there at the table with you. And if there isn't somebody there representing, you got to ask why. Like, how come, like I do this at my company. How come we don't have any female executives? How come there are two black people that work for this company? You know, and, and, that's uncomfortable and nothing may come of it, but you got to ask those questions because it's not until those people are at the table with you that you can have a full, um, you can fully represent what you want. Thank you. I, that, I really appreciate that answer. I get all worked up sometimes, but I don't always have someone black or of color at the table. So yeah. And you don't have to, and, and I don't think black people want you to speak for them. Black people don't want me to speak for them. I speak for Trish. So you need to have them with you so that they can do the speaking for themselves. Yeah. It's, and, and, and there's, I think there's element of curiosity again, like, you know, like you're saying, why aren't there more people at this table right now and start asking and start challenging those conversations? Because I know it's our default setting. It's not that we mean to be bad. It's just like, you know, the first couple scripts I wrote back in the early aughts were just all white people. Cause they just, that's, you know, they didn't even think about it. And, and I, now I always tell my challenge my students because there's, you know, when you're setting up your character descriptions, they'll be like, Joe 34, you know, whatever, Sally 35 and this way. And then they'll be like, Simon black. I'm like, Oh, so then what are, what are the first two? Were they, not what, you know, it's just, but I like how it's the default setting. And I'm like, no, how about you specify all the races then just, or say, you know, what, I forget what the phrase is, but like race doesn't matter. Like this, any open casting, free, ca open, you know, whatever casting. And, it's and just, I mean, the other thing, it, it, it wouldn't matter. You write what you know. So, so what you yeah. write white characters, but if maybe there's gotta be an executive in the room, how about if we make this like a trans man, who's black? Yeah. you know, yeah. like you need those people to kind of push you because it's, it's hard to be a creative and to try to say, oh, try to think out of the box with yeah. it. But there's nobody there asking those questions. And that's yeah. the problem. And that's, that's just keeping your eye on what your default is and then asking the questions. I'm adapting a, a novel, a sci-fi novel right now into a script for a, a client. And everyone in the, in the book was white except for one character that was a Chinese man. So I went back and I said, okay, can I, can I do this? Can I do this? And, and he was like, he was actually, he's a really super open writer. So thank God I made the Chinese lead female. And then there's three white people. I think I kept and everyone else is a person of color. Now I'm just like, Nope, that guy's Indian. That guy's black. That guy's this, that guy, you know, just like, I'm just trying to pull just like, why is the default white? So I'm trying to make it as open you like that, please. You know, don't make the black person a plot device or a red shirt. Just, no. just the, you know, like a red shirt. They die in the first two minutes of Star Trek. Oh, we know they're going to die, you know, in the first battle because we don't know their name. It's just a random black fighter. Right. Yeah. Lana asks, white men seem to be desperate to keep a hold of power. Yes. 
but it feels like we are on the cusp of a change. Do you find optimism in that? Not necessarily. I'm just optimistic. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't think, I think that's a, that's a long, long game to play. Yeah. But I'm off. I mean, there's talent out there. You know, you look at tech, tech is so incredibly white and they're like, well, we don't, there's not the pipeline. There's not the talent pipeline. There's a talent pipeline. There are a ton of women and people of color and black people in STEM and whatever. It's just an excuse. And it goes across industries and you just need one person and not in that ghetto of diversity and inclusion that people hire to make themselves feel good. You need somebody representing and saying, you know, here's our talent. How, how can we develop it? It's out there. We need to find it. Yeah. That's what I keep, you know, obviously being involved in, in these female women, um, you know, women in film things that I'm involved with. It's like, there's all kinds of people and, you know, non-binary folks and stuff. So that, that, that are so talented that are, that I hear from all the time. And I'm sitting there going, you just haven't looked. If you're telling me you can't find somebody to fill that, you haven't looked. Yeah. Uh, you look at the trans, I mean, like for years, probably from the beginning, you know, there are a ton of trans women. Why do you have to hire a, a male, a, a cis, gender, you know, male play, because they're like, that run the gamut. Well, that's like Pose is really fun because I, you know, it's like Ryan Murphy is so like, we are casting people who are the people and it's. And there's so many more where those came from. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and like conversely, it's, it's, I have a family member I was talking with about this, this recently, and she was saying, you know, I had this job. And then I, you know, had to leave for family reasons and came back and was told, oh, there's um, like you, um, what's it called? Affirmative action. And she said, uh, and I, I couldn't get the job back because I'm white. So like they gave it to some, someone of color, but I, I left and then, and I was just like, and she was kind of really bunched, you know, bunched up about it. And I, it's as a white person, I'm like, I, I need to hear your upset because if I start going, that doesn't matter. She's there. That's when the people, that's when people spiral. But I was trying to gently say, okay, that I, I get that happened to you. Absolutely. And that's, you know, I'm sorry you couldn't have that job, but the difference is you could have so many other jobs. And then until, until it's been 400 years of you being told, you can't have that job because you're the wrong color. Then, then we can talk about I how say, unfair that is. Ask the questions to them because people love saying, "Oh my God!" You know, like it's the worst to be a white male. We're not going to get any jobs. Okay, so let's look at your org chart. Let's see <laughs> where the jobs went. Do you mean this one black person is the reason that you know? I mean, and this is this is an extreme, but I'm a New Yorker. This is you know. For years, um, black people were kept out of the fire department. Really? You know, like the testing and and they're like, oh no, you know, affirmative action. That one firefighter took the place. So black people were pretty much shut out of those positions. So 9-11 happens. What is the profile of of the people who are lost in 9-11? And it's because it's like, look, we all could have shared the pain. But you want to keep a certain demographic out of your business, you know, whatever. You're going to pay one way or the other sooner or later. You know, like, 
she left her job and oh my God, a black woman got it. Like is, is the entire department now black? Um, or is it ju just that one job? Do you know that she was less qualified than you? I mean, it, it just, just there's yeah. a lot, lot of symptoms. The supremacy thing, like, of course I must be better than her. She's just this affirmative action higher. And you think that's, uh, that's dated thinking. But like I said earlier, I went to a private school and New York City private schools are having their own reckoning right now. Um, I was the only black girl in my class, in my grade, you know, when I went there, they hadn't had a girl in that class. And when I left, no one replaced me. Um, so the percentages are better now, but in these schools, it's, it's just, it's the thinking is the same because they all have black at whatever Instagrams that are really challenging the system. And they're saying, Oh, the guidance counselor says that, yeah, um, because of affirmative action, you'll probably get into that school, but you'll take so-and-so's place. So the thinking hasn't gone away. Uh, and it's supremacy is saying, like, you obviously are not as smart or as worthy as I am. There has to be a reason you, who I subconsciously think of as less than, are, are getting that spot. Well, that, and that's, the, that's the, the, the toxic thinking is that, they, that you took my spot. Like you were entitled to it somehow. And Those are hard though. I mean, you know, I think there's real backlash to even the term white privilege now. People, you know, they just, so there's gotta be a grown up way to have this discussion with people. Just say, look, let me just break it down for y'all. <laughs> this is the yeah. way, to, how do we get past it? You know, your feelings are hurt being labeled this way, whatever. We know your feelings hurt not being centered in this fight, whatever, how we fix it, how do we fix it? Because when we fix it, we all, our in, entire industry benefits. Yeah. So I don't know what that answer is. Somebody's got to come up with it. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is like, we're, we all, we all benefit, you know, this goes back to the taco truck argument, the, uh, around the election where it was like, you know, Oh, we can't have the Democrats win because there'll be taco trucks on every corner. And we were like, Sweet. Well, Bring so it on. I love a taco truck right outside the house right now. Like, yeah. it's that kind of, that, that the thinking of like, what this will cost you to share versus what you will gain if you share. But that goes back to the very beginning, right? Yeah. We're, prote we're protecting our culture. Yeah. That's what people want to do. They just want to, they, they are, they can't trust in their, innate superiority so they have to they have to try to mess with it yeah well I mean I, I I mean I used to be really afraid of change you know and there's a certain point when I was able to just sort of embrace to a large extent like change being a good thing and I feel like I can I can see at that that was like a high watermark for me when everything after that I become so much more open and like willing to, you know, challenge how I think about things and listen. And, you know, so it's like, okay, well, how do we, how do we manufacture that change in people who are crying? No, you're taking my spot at the table or, you know, people who you are deciding. You can't force somebody to evolve. I know. You know? Oh, well. That's the key. Well, Lana asks, uh, what, what content creators do you love right now? Oh, I just watched the old guard. Uh, oh, we watched that last night. And I loved it. I love Gina Prince Blythewood. You know, like she had a movie called, um, what's it, Beyond the Lights? Yes. 
you know, she just, she just hasn't had her due. I think she's fantastic. Um, I haven't watched the five blood yet, but Spike Lee is old faithful for me. I mean, he's, Classic. he's got a specific way of storytelling. You know, you either love him or you don't, but I, I enjoy him. I enjoy his point of view. Sarah asks, what's your favorite Spike Lee film and why? Oh, wow. Um, I like my, Malcolm X. Interesting. And um, I really appreciate he produced a movie that won a Spirit Award this year. It's called See You Yesterday. Oh. I think first time filmmakers. And it's on Netflix. Okay. And it's a story, um, a time travel type story with teenagers. It's really good. It's really, okay. it's fun. You know, it's, it's a indie film, but it's, it's, uh, and I think it completely reflects his ethos. I feel like this is, we're just scratching the surface. You know, there's so much to do here. A big part of the battle is just realizing that you are stuck in your own perspective and looking outside, like try to, trying to look outside more and understand other people's perspectives and, you know, that you are in a bubble. I mean, I found, I had a, a huge moment of epiphany a couple of years ago with my friend, my friend Durga. Do you know, I can't remember if you know Durga. She's, um, she's, she was on a couple of weeks ago. She's the vocalist for Pink Floyd, the backup vocalist. As tall as me, six feet tall, very dark, braids down to her knees. I mean, she, Ted's turn when Durga walks in a room and also because she's like that this incredible you know Leo type of person and I was in a CVS and I had my little canvas bag on my shoulder and I was just throwing my shopping in my seat in my bag and then all of a sudden I just was like oh this is white privilege isn't it and she just started <laughs> laughing and she was just like yeah you think I could throw stuff in my canvas bag and the security guard would be following me and I just was like oh my God, you know? So it's just that kind of like trying to keep present. That is what privilege looks like. This is an example. Here's an example. Can I pull the chair out for someone else at the table? And can I listen better? Or, I mean, is there a reason I, I worked with a woman who, um, when Crazy Rich Asians came out, she's like, I just don't get it. Like, I don't, think she could see herself in those characters and didn't want to see herself in those characters. I would say, you know, if, even if it's a struggle, find some stories. You don't have to love them. Just yeah. start, you know, don't go for the, the normal movie that everybody's pushing. Try another story and you might like it. And then, yeah. you know, that's the baby steps to uh, widening your worldview. Well, I think um, that's that's a great place to end. You, if you guys haven't read Trisha's piece pieces on the medium on Medium, um, you can just look her up, up, up by her name on Medium. Um, Trish, thank you so much. This is, thanks for having me on. This is great. Yeah, I love you, and I just I'm so glad you're in my life. And this is you know, fighting the good fight and writing good stories while we do it. Next time on Hearthside Salons. Wanjiru Njendu is a storyteller by nature and a filmmaker who takes a stand. She grew up in Kenya where her documentary was used to provide evidence against the British government by the Mau Mau colonial war survivors. Her latest short, Boxed, tells the true story of an enslaved African-American who mailed himself to freedom in 1849. And this is just part of what earned Wanjiru membership in the 2020 class of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. We'll talk about film, 
race, and responsibility and risk in storytelling. Special thanks to our graphic and sonic designer, Joel Harris. Our theme music is by Lachey Swing. For more on our script coaching, online concept to pages writing courses, and writing retreats in Italy, again someday, check out pagecraftwriting.com, at pagecraftwriting on Instagram, and at pagecraftwrite on Twitter. I'm Heidi from PageCraft. Thanks for listening and stay well.